Before we read Paul's uh, letter today together, please join me again in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing in our study. O gracious and righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for this word handed on to us by your apostles and prophets. We thank you that this word is true, and we pray that you would give us faith to hold fast to it. We pray that you would help us uh, to see the message you have for your people, to look to Jesus Christ, to hold fast to the one who holds fast to us. O Lord God, we pray for assurance for your people and growth in grace, and that you, of course, would be uh, glorified among us as we study. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, You're probably aware that in the center of town, across town, uh, across two, uh, there stands in the center of town a very large white building with a very high gold-covered steeple. There's a sign outside that states that the congregation that meets there was first gathered in 1636. By their own admission, the message that you will hear inside of that building on a given Sunday bears very little resemblance to the gospel that was preached there almost 400 years ago. You can go down the road a ways and you can find yourself in Cambridge where you can still see the original motto of Harvard University etched into granite in various places around the campus. Truth for Christ and the church. Now today, the Lord and his bride have been redacted. The motto has been shortened merely to truth. Go a little bit further across the pond uh, to Old England. Go to London, and there you can find the headquarters of the British Broadcasting Company still bearing on a plaque the original dedication of that place. It says, this temple of the arts and muses is dedicated to Almighty God, that the people inclining their ears to whatsoever things are beautiful and honest and of good report may tread the paths of wisdom and righteousness. You see it all around you. Practically every town in New England has some big white building where the word of God used to be preached. There are any number of institutions around us, secular institutions with once intentionally sacred roots. And I bet that you all each know at least one person who used to claim the name of Christ who now wants nothing at all to do with Jesus. 
institutionally, that shift is known as a mission creep. In the church, it's called apostasy. And among individuals, increasingly, it is known by the hashtag deconstruction. It is a casting off of the old ways. It is an intentional suppression of the faith that used to give stability to life. It is a rejection of the name of Jesus as the only name by which men must be saved. We've seen in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that it's also exactly what the Lord told His church was going to happen. He said before the coming... Uh, of, the, uh, of Christ before the end of the age, Paul said that that day won't come until the apostasy comes first. He spoke about a man of lawlessness who was coming to deceive. He talked about a mystery of lawlessness that was already at work. And I had an opportunity to talk to many of you after the service last week, and you confirmed that, you know, we look around ourselves in the world, and this is exactly what we expect. This is exactly what the Lord told us was going to happen. And then we turn from looking at the world and we look at ourselves, and I think every Christian who has a pulse has wondered at least at one time or another, couldn't that also be the same sort of thing that happens to me? The old Puritan, William Gurnall, said that we have peace with God as soon as we believe We do not always have peace with ourselves. He meant that Christians sometimes struggle with assurance of salvation. He meant that as we look at the wreckage of spiritual desertion around us, we wonder if our faith will be able to stand the test of our trials. He meant that we need something bigger than our own believing and the the strength of our own faith to give us a hope that lasts for eternity. Today, in 2 Thessalonians, that is precisely where Paul is pointing the church, beyond ourselves for assurance. You know, the New Testament tells us that assurance of salvation is something that Christians can have. 2 Peter chapter 1 urges us to pursue it. He tells us, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Be diligent to see the assurance of your salvation, he's telling us. The only way we can do that really is to learn to look beyond ourselves and to look to what the Lord has done to save his people. Our focus today in this passage is not going to be on what we must do. There is something for us to do here. Our focus, rather, is to see what the Lord has done. What He has done to save His people and the assurance that we find in His work of salvation. Today we begin by considering God's choice in our salvation. Verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. There's that language again. That language of predestination. That language of God's choice, His sovereign, almighty direction over who shall receive the gift of life in Jesus. It seems like we can't get very far in these letters without running into that doctrine all over again. Nor should we really want to. 
I've told some of you, I know, about the story of, uh, of my experience attending a Presbyterian college, my undergraduate college, and attending that college as a card-carrying anti-Calvinist. That's where I was at the time. I, I was out-and-out uh, out Arminian, and I loved my out-and-out out Arminianism, uh, and I was pursuing a Bible degree, hoping to make my way into ministry someday, and I didn't believe any of that stuff about irresistible grace, right, or, or, uh, or unconditional election or any of it. In fact, I couldn't understand why so many of my professors seemed unable to talk about Christianity and salvation without finding a way to stick that stuff in there somehow. They always managed to find a way to get it into that sort of thing. And so as part of my studies, I had to take a class on one of Paul's letters. I got to choose based on uh, what was on offer. And the semester that I had to register, Romans was one of the offerings. Well, I knew better than that. I knew that if I signed up for Romans, it would just be chapter 9, and Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated, and I didn't want to sit through another one of those lectures. So in my infinite wisdom, I signed up for Ephesians. Little did I know, four verses into the book, there it was again. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I couldn't get away from it. And praise the Lord, neither can you when you read the Bible. So whether it's Romans chapter 9, whether it's Ephesians chapter 1, whether it's Acts chapter 16, where we find that, you know, Paul actually wanted to go to Asia Minor with the gospel. He actually wanted to go in one direction and preach in one place, but the Holy Spirit said, no, not there, you're going to Macedonia, because I have people in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea who need to hear the word. Whether it's in any of those places, we keep coming back to God's unchallenged choice in salvation. And really, that's where our understanding of God's grace needs to begin in our lives. From knowing that salvation is not the result of our efforts. You know, we do a bit and then God rounds it out with a little bit of his grace to fill in the cracks. That's not what salvation is. Our appreciation for salvation, our assurance of salvation, needs to begin with an understanding that life in Jesus is a gift from God through and through. It is a gift from Him from the very beginning, before there was a beginning, before the foundations of the earth were laid, says Ephesians. It's the reason that Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonians. I actually read a commentary this week that said, Paul gave thanks for the Thessalonians because they chose to follow the Lord. It's literally the opposite of what he says. He gives thanks because God chose them. Not that they chose the Lord, but that he's chosen them. Not that they've decided to follow Jesus, but that he decided to save them like a brand plucked from a fire already burning. Phil Riken says it this way. He says, salvation is neither initiated by human choice nor appropriated by human effort. It does not come from the sinner, but from God's sovereign choosing. It's not our decision, actually. Of course, there is a human decision involved in salvation. 
Don't misunderstand it there. Believing in divine election doesn't mean that we believe that salvation happens the way things happen in the matrix. I know I'm dating myself uh, by using that reference, and all of you Gen Zers are like, what are you talking about? But in the matrix, you, you get plugged into that machine, and it gets downloaded, and suddenly, I know Kung Fu. Right? That's not what we're talking about here when we're talking about God chooses and then he saves. Salvation always involves a human decision. It always demands a personal response. The gospel always calls us to faith and repentance. And there's nobody who can claim to be a Christian who has not turned from their sin and believed in Jesus personally. But the Lord who chooses his people for salvation also chooses and appoints the means of saving them. So notice what he says. You've been chosen as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That language of sanctification there most likely, probably does not mean the process of sanctification that we go through in our lives becoming progressively more and more like Christ, it probably means to the action of God setting aside his people for himself. It's sanctification in the sense of consecration. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament were to do with their first fruit offerings. When the harvest began to come in, they were to take the first bit and they were to set them aside to sanctify them, to consecrate them as holy, as a special offering to the Lord. The same thing's happening here. The Holy Spirit separates for himself those whom God has chosen. He consecrates them as holy. He marks out the territory that God is claiming. And once the Holy Spirit sanctifies God's chosen ones, he also gives them the faith that unites them to Christ. He gives them belief in the truth because that is what they've been chosen for. And when you see it in context, the, the larger argument that Paul has been making, it becomes a bit more dramatic. Notice that we began our reading today with uh, a but. Not this, but something else. So it means we need to back up a little bit. And when we read verses 11 and 12, we see that Paul is showing us that the work of God uh, also confirms the condemnation of those who do not believe. That's what it says there. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Not so in verse 13. In verse 13, the benefits run in the opposite direction. And at each point, there seems to be a perfect parallel. Right? They will be condemned, he says, but God chose you for salvation. They're the ones who have pleasure in unrighteousness, but you, he says, have been set apart as holy by the Spirit. God sends them, he says, a strong delusion, but you he has set apart for belief in the truth. At each point, he's drawing a perfect parallel to remind us that our stability in our faith does not come from our hold on the Lord in the midst of our afflictions. Our assurance comes from knowing that salvation is a gift chosen and purchased and applied by the Lord. Salvation comes from God's choice to make us his. And that cho choice is a wonderful thing. Uh, Garrison Keeler wrote a little story about his childhood. 
about his longing to be chosen. Different context, but I think it helps us to understand what, uh, what that longing feels like. He, Garrison Keillor says, the captains are down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher. Someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. They choose the last ones two at a time, you and you, because it makes no difference. So sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower. But just once I'd like Daryl to pick me first. Just once for him to say, him, I want him, the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes, but I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. What Garrison Keillor longed for as a boy, the Christian has been given eternally in Christ Jesus. Chosen with enthusiasm, beloved by the Lord, he calls them, from before the foundations of the earth were laid, not because of what we can add to the team, not because of our skill or our style, chosen because the Lord delights in choosing. John tells us that we love him because he first loved us. Paul's telling us that we choose him because he first chose us. Believers grow in assurance as they grow in an understanding of God's choice. We also grow as we understand God's calling. Second point, God's calling in salvation. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now for many of us, this is where the doctrine and and the question of assurance really gets personal. It's one thing, Uh, to agree with the doctrine of election, at least uh, intellectually. It's one thing to say, yes, yes, God has his number, his elect ones, he knows who belong to him, and it's quite another thing to believe that God has chosen you, that you're actually part of that number. After all, we can't see God's election, we can't see his choice, we do not have access to the names that he has written in his book of life. We can't find them and look at them and see, written in black and white, that we belong to the king. So how can we trust in something that we can't see? Paul's telling us we can see God's choice when we see it worked out in God's calling. It's helpful, I think, to understand that this this language of calling in the New Testament uh, is often applied to two realities. There is what we call the external call, the outward call of the gospel, and there is the internal call of the Holy Spirit. One is a call that reaches to the ears, another is a call that works on the soul. Those two are connected. One leads to another, at least that's the way that the Lord has structured it. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So gospel first, then grace, but not always. Not always, because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, that many are called and few are chosen. It means that sometimes the external call goes out and the internal call is not accompanied. He means that the gospel is preached far and wide. He means that there are many who sit in churches, many who hear the message of Jesus Christ, many who receive the preaching of the gospel, and yet they do not believe. Not everybody who hears it believes it. Not all who are called outwardly are also called inwardly. But in Thessalonica, they were. 
In Thessalonica, not only did the gospel go forth, but the Holy Spirit went forth into the lives of these men and women to give them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To this, that is to salvation, he says, he called you through our gospel. Notice the connection of the inward and the outward. The apostles came preaching. They came speaking the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the Lord added the power of his spirit. He took these people from from the worship of idols to waiting for Jesus Christ. He shattered the cold stone of their sin-hard hearts to make them trust in the Savior of sinners. It was his blessing, his spiritual work that only the Lord could do to call them to salvation. Because you know, there are others who heard it. You can go back to Acts and you can read the account of Paul's ministry through Macedonia. From one town to the next, Paul and Silas and Timothy were harassed and driven out by men who opposed the gospel, who wanted nothing to do with it. In Philippi, they were beaten and imprisoned. In Thessalonica, they were driven out by night. In Berea, they were again harassed and chased out by men who came all the way from Thessalonica to oppose the message of the gospel. So not everybody who heard the gospel believed the gospel, but the ones who did were those who received the inward call of the Holy Spirit of God. And in Paul's theology, that calling, that inward call to faith, is a step in the direction of assurance. It is the next logical link in the sovereign chain of redemption. You remember that passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and verse 30. Paul says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the same order, only shorter, that we find here. He chose you, he says. He called you to this, he says, and why? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. This is the salvation he spoke of earlier in the book, chapter 1, verse 10. That day when Christ comes back to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all those who have believed. This wonderful beatific vision that will belong to all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose you and he called you for glory in Jesus, he's telling you. God's calling is preparing you for that reality. His inward gift of faith is marking you out for the day of Christ Jesus. Some perceptive person says, hold on a minute there. Uh, Pastor, earlier you said that we need more than our own inward faith to find assurance of salvation. But now it sounds like you're pointing us back to that faith as an evidence that we've actually got it, and it seems like we're going in circles. How can I find assurance of salvation if all I'm doing is examining whether or not the Lord has given me faith yet? But that's not what I'm telling you to do. Our assurance does not come by examining our faith to see if it is strong enough. Our assurance doesn't come from navel-gazing our own spiritual experience. Assurance comes by looking more to the one that we have our faith in. 
It comes as we grow in a conviction that Jesus is a strong enough Savior to deliver even those Christians who have a very weak faith. There's a little helpful book by R.C. Sproul on assurance. Can I know that I'm saved? The book is called 30, 40 pages. You can pick it up as a pamphlet. In this little book, R.C. Sproul says that when people come to him and ask that all-important question, how can I know if I'm saved? He says he asks them three questions of his own. The first question he asks them is, do you love Jesus perfectly? Well, no. Uh, No is always the answer. In fact, if the answer is not no, there are bigger problems than assurance that he has to deal with. Do you love Jesus perfectly? The answer is no. The follow-up question is, well, do you love Jesus as much as you ought to? Well, there's a puzzle, uh, actually, because that's another way of asking the first question. We're called to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And so if we do not love Jesus perfectly, we do not love him as much as we ought And so finally, with the prospect of of spotless devotion to Jesus off the table, he asks them one more question. He says, well, do you love Jesus at all? It sounds like a, a ridiculously low bar at first, I suppose. Any love for Jesus? I mean, just... Just the smallest little inkling, any devotion to the one whom the scriptures reveal? Not the Jesus of our modern imagination, mind you. The Jesus of the New Testament. right? The Jesus of the manger and the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension. Do you have any love at all for the Christ whom Paul preached? It seems like a low bar, maybe. But the more you learn about what the scriptures teach about our sinful nature about our deadness and depravity, the more that you learn those things, the more you learn that even a bar that low is impossibly high. There is no bar low enough that a sinner dead in our transgressions can get over it by our own effort. So R.C. Sproul says, do you love him at all? Has that calling been effective in your life? Has it given you devotion to the Lord, even if it's not very large? Do you have any faith in the one who said he's coming back on that last day for salvation and judgment? Have you learned at all from the scriptures that he is the one your soul is longing for, even if you aren't sure if you've taken hold of him yet? You know, Jesus told us that no one can come to the Son unless the Father who sent him draws him. And so to R.C. Sproul's three questions, I add one of my own. Even if you haven't loved Jesus as much as you ought to, do you sometimes wish that you loved him more than you do? Are you ever grieved, dear Christian, by the smallness of your faith? Are you ever overwhelmed by the enormity of your sin? Have you ever been forced to recognize by experience that you are not strong enough to hold fast to Him? Do you ever wish that you could begin to love Him even a fraction of the love that we find that He has for those who are His? Because if you do, take heart. That's grace that comes through God's calling. No one can 
love Jesus Christ. No one can come to the Son unless the Father who sent him draws him. Nobody can wish that their love for Christ was greater than it is right now unless the Father who sent the Son draws him. It's faith that holds firm, not because it's strong, but because it rests in a very strong Savior, the one who holds on to you. So we grow in our assurance. As we understand God's choice, and as we receive God's calling, lastly, we grow by experiencing God's comfort. God's comfort is our our last point. You notice there's this command in verse 15, something for God's people to do. And I don't want to make that command seem unimportant, because it's not. But you also notice that that command is aimed at the same main idea that we've been circling around for the last three weeks. So we've, we've covered it, in a sense. Stand firm and hold fast, says Paul. Earlier, he warned the church not to be deceived, verse 3. He talked about the man of lawlessness that was coming, and he would have false signs and, and, uh, and, uh, and false miracles, lying miracles. He, he talked about the mystery of lawlessness that was already at work. And now he comes back to the main point that has been the point of this whole chapter so far. Stand firm and hold. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Taught by us, in verse 15, corresponds to our gospel in verse 14. We came instructing you. There is an apostolic message that God has given to you. We taught you by word. We taught you by letter. Do not deviate from the apostolic gospel, he's saying. Don't let go of the good news of Jesus. And we read that and we say, yes and amen. That's what we're trying to figure out how to do. That's what we're sometimes anxious about. So if we're all on the same page in verse 15, we can keep reading. We can see that as uh, right next to what Paul tells the church to do, he also prays for what the Lord can do among them. Verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is where I tell you that I'm not crazy about this word comfort uh, that shows up in these two verses. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with the word or the concept. And actually, it's a pretty good translation of what Paul had in mind here. So, so translationally, grammatically, it's, it's perfectly fine. It's a common everyday Greek word used all over the place. Uh, it means essentially to console or to admonish. It sort of uh, sits on the edge between those two ideas. It means to come alongside someone to be their helper, uh, to relieve them of their suffering, but also to build them up for action. So that's actually a pretty good word. You think about it, comfort in that sense is exactly what the church needs when it comes to our assurance and our, our perseverance. So my problem isn't with how Paul uses this word, but my problem is with how we hear this word. You know that when we hear the idea of comfort, we probably think of something that is far less useful than what I've just described. Right? When we think of comfort, we think of pillow-top mattresses. Right? We think of warm bath water. We think of those fuzzy socks with little grippies on the bottom that you wear when you go to the hospital. When we think of comfort, we think of the things that make us feel comfortable. 
But the whole context of this chapter should be enough to remind us that Paul is not asking the Lord to put a pillow under our spiritual heads and sing us off to sleep because we're cozy. That's not the kind of comfort that he's after. No, Paul is asking the Lord to make his people immovable. Rock solid, we could say, steadfast in the faith. He's asking the Lord to establish us, to make us unshakable in the face of the ever-mounting pressure of false teaching and personal trials and a whole world of sin that would love nothing more than to topple the kingdom of Christ Jesus and every person who loves him and trusts him. Paul is not offering a prayer for our spiritual convalescence. He's asking the Lord to lead us into combat, to establish our hearts so that we can stand firm. In fact, in John's gospel, when Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper, better, the comforter, the Holy, uh, who, who the Father is going to send in his name, that's what he means. I will pray and the Father will send you another comforter, he says. Who is he? Well, he's the one that will take Jesus' presence after he's gone and make it real to his fearful disciples. Who will give them the sort of backbone of knowing that Christ has not left them as orphans. He will not abandon them. He will be with them and he will come to them again to take them where he's going. Who is this comforter? He's the spirit who girds God's people with the armor that will keep them safe and standing against all the schemes of the evil one. How does he do it? Well, he does it by reminding us and convincing us of the truth of the gospel. He does it by giving us greater faith in who God is for his people and what he has done for our salvation. One last little grammatical tidbit about verse 16. The verbs that we find in verse 16 that talk about God's loving and God's giving, those are finite verbs. Grant, they're aorists. Right? Technically, they are aorist verbs, and what that means uh, is that they are particular rather than general. Right? They point to a single action, not some ongoing action that happened in the past, but to a single definitive action completed and done with. And it means that Paul is pointing to some specific thing that God has done to place his love upon us and to give us hope and comfort by his grace, and I bet you know exactly what he has in mind. Because on a bare hill outside Jerusalem, God the Father proved his love for his children. And as the nails were driven and as the cross was raised, Christ Jesus proved his love for his disciples. He did it by offering himself up as a a sinless sacrifice. A perfect atonement to be the propitiation of our sins. That means to reconcile us to God through his offering. An atoning sacrifice. The substitute in our place that takes away, that's expiation, takes away the wrath of God, and propitiation reunites us to him in loving communion. That's how he did it. He did it through the single offering that he has used to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. He did it through the empty tomb and the resurrected body. 
He did it through the hope and the comfort that look forward to an eternity in his presence. And whether you have been a Christian for 65 years or 65 minutes, this is always where assurance is found in what he has done for us. This is always where assurance grows. It comes as a gift of the Holy Spirit. It comes as he works uh, the courage and the comfort of the gospel into our hearts. It comes as he convinces us, us that actually he hasn't left us. He will not abandon us. He's not leaving us just to figure it out on our own. He has not left us as orphans, but he will come to us and he will take us to where he is. That's where he has been leading this whole chapter, isn't it? He's coming back. And they were worried that maybe they had missed it. Maybe that day of the Lord had come and gone and they were left outside and their assurance is shaken and he's saying, no, keep looking to what God has done in Christ Jesus. Remember the love that he has for you in him. Remember the comfort of his coming. Remember the eternal hope laid up for you in heaven in Christ Jesus. Look to him, Paul's telling us. Look to the gospel. Look to Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and raised for our salvation, ascended to the Father, interceding for the saints, coming again on the last day to bring us to himself so that we, his saints, would be glorified in him and marvel at him because we've believed in the truth. Do not turn away, Paul is telling us. Keep looking at him. Keep turning to him. Keep believing in him. He's the one who calls his people. And he's the one who's able to make us faithful. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for the gift of your spirit to give faith to all those whom you have chosen for yourself to draw us to yourself in new life and rejoicing in you. Oh Lord, we pray that if there are any here who do not yet know you, that you would call them as well, not only outwardly, but inwardly. That you would gather all your elect and gather and perfect your saints. Keep us, O Lord, waiting for you and watching for you and longing for you. Confirm us, O Lord, that we may have the assurance that you are for us and that in you we will be made faithful to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.